You're listening to Brain Biohacking with your host, Kayla Barnes. We dive into all things optimal health, nutrition, peak performance, cognitive excellence, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. I am so excited to have Dr. Austin Perlmutter here with us today. He is a board-certified internal medicine physician, a New York Times best-selling author, educator, and consultant. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami and completed his internal medicine residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Today, we're going to dive into all things brain health, neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, psychedelics, and so much more. I can't wait for you to listen. I am so excited to have you here today, Dr. Perlmutter. We're going to dive into all things optimal brain health. Thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here as well. So I want to start with kind of some of just the brain health basics. What do you think in terms of diet, in terms of lifestyle, what are the biggest pieces that you practice and that you recommend for optimal brain health? Yeah. So I generally start with trying to get people to understand that our brain health, like most aspects of our health, are a reflection of our inputs. And so our output, which is brain health, is a reflection of what we're putting into our bodies. And then I say, what are the most important things that we're putting into our bodies that are changing our output? And that gets us to nutrition. It also gets us to relationships and exercise. And it really takes us into all of the different pathways that converge on the brain. But the key idea here is that your output is only going to be as good as your inputs. So thinking about the quality of what you're putting into your body, what is getting either built into the structure of your brain or changing your brain function is essential if we're trying to achieve good brain health. So when it comes to nutrition, what do you recommend? What do you eat in a day? Yeah. You know, we're at a time where people are very polarized as far as what is seen as the right diet. And it just takes a moment or two on Instagram uh, until you see that if you're not uh, hardcore vegan, hardcore paleo, hardcore carnivore, just people will be upset with you for what you're recommending. I don't really stick to any of these camps as it relates to both what I do for myself as well as what I recommend. I think the key is overall to avoid what I think we should all agree is, is damaging to our brains and bodies, and that is ultra-processed food, which has been shown in a number of studies to correlate with a number of negative health outcomes, including worse brain health. And you can get into the biochemistry of why this is. But fundamentally, understanding that our brains need to, in essence, have access to good quality fuel, as well as good quality building blocks, means that we can look at the quality of our meat, the quality of our vegetables, and ask ourselves whether that is contributing to building a healthy brain or probably damaging it. So what I look at is trying to get a variety of different foods in my diet and trying to pursue generally high quality of those foods. That includes animal products. That also includes many plant-based foods. Um, I'm not the, the world's best chef. So I also look to do things that are relatively simple that I know are going to taste good. 
we can walk through if you're interested what a typical day of, of my eating looks like, but it's trying to ensure, you know, decent quality proteins that if I'm eating carbohydrates, that they aren't refined carbohydrates and that I'm getting good fats every day, uh, ideally in every meal, it's generally more of a Mediterranean style or Mediterranean pattern diet, um, heavy in things like olive oil, uh, heavy in things like, um, unrefined grains. Um, so I, I wouldn't say heavy in, in unrefined grains, but definitely, you know, I'm not completely opposed to eating some, some brown rice on occasion to eating quinoa. Um, it's just a question I think of moderation. The other thing I'll say, which has been very interesting for me is, uh, working with continuous glucose monitoring. I've been able to see that as it relates to at least glucose excursions or spikes in my blood sugar, there is a huge difference between eating a bowl of brown rice on its own and eating that bowl of brown rice with a piece of salmon. So I think that as you get a little bit better understanding of how your own body works, you don't have to be quite as restrictive perhaps in saying, I can't ever have this thing because you know, biologically what it's doing to your body in real time. Yeah, I agree. But I would love to hear what you eat like for breakfast. Do you eat twice sure. a day? Do you practice any intermittent fasting? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I tend to do two meals a day. Um, and the first meal a day is usually around 11 o'clock. So last meal a day, try to finish say between six, six thirty. So there is a, a decent window there, um, where in between, um, eating, but first meal a day again, around 11 o'clock. And usually it's some variant of eggs. I'm a big fan of eggs, try to get pastured and organic eggs whenever possible. Um, and then some sort of leafy green. So I'm a fan of kales. I know some people aren't, aren't as big of a fan of kale these days, but I like the taste. I like the crunch. Um, and then might do something like black beans, um, or some sort of legume. Um, and then, you know, depending on the day, maybe some sort of sauteed vegetable alongside this. So zucchinis we've gotten into, uh, definitely red onion, big fan of that just for the taste. There's also some evidence for things like quercetin and other polyphenols that are found in red onions that are probably pretty good for our health. And then avocado, um, and all of that just gets uh, drizzled with a pretty substantial amount of olive oil. So it's it's trying to stick to, again, more or less a Mediterranean pattern diet as far as sticking to ingredients that the food itself is the ingredients. One thing that I try to educate people on is that the majority of breakfast foods tend to be very uh, not so carefully disguised desserts. They're just, uh, in essence, refined carbohydrates with a lot of sugar. And so moving towards single ingredient foods where I could say, this is a zucchini. The ingredient list is a zucchini. Same with eggs, I think is really helpful for us to be able to avoid many of the additives that go into packaged foods. So again, that's that's generally what I'll do for a day in a breakfast. And it's usually some sort of a variant on those types of things that I've described. But I think what's I would put forth to people is, uh, I was certainly in the camp of feeling like I needed to eat breakfast all the time uh, at 8 a.m. or 7 a.m. or 6.30 to power myself for the day. And when you switch over to a delayed breakfast or really becomes a lunch, um, I think that that is, it takes a little bit of time for the body to adapt. There are certain hormones like ghrelin and leptin that actually take several days to kick in as far as how they get changed. And initially you will feel pretty hungry, but once you start moving away from the refined carbohydrates and train your body to start eating later in the day, I'm not hungry until that time. It's not like I wake up and this, my stomach is gnawing until 11 a.m. 
I don't even feel hungry until then. So it's, it's a combination of getting good quality foods and avoiding the foods like refined carbohydrates that lead to glucose uh, spikes and crashes that may induce more feelings of craving and hunger that enables a person, I think, to transition towards more of a couple meal a day type of scenario. The last thing I'll just say on that is in transitioning from eating three meals a day and snacking in between meals to eating two meals a day and usually not having much snacks, you really free up a lot of your time where you're not completely focused on getting a snack, getting your next meal. Um, it enables me to focus on getting work done or whatever it is I'm trying to do and not constantly be thinking about running to the kitchen for a little bit more of this or that. So I recommend people try these things out. I mean, there is a case to be made for people who have um, significant glucose issues, specifically something like diabetes, to work with a provider to make sure everything is stable if you're trying to change your meal schedule dramatically. But I think for most people, we've kind of gotten locked into this idea that you have to kick off the day with a big breakfast and you have to keep eating throughout the day. And it's, it's probably not all that biologically sound. Yeah, I agree. Our our breakfast and, and dinner times are so similar. And I, again, I love eggs too. I think it's a great way to start the day. Of course, some people have, you know, food sensitivities and things of that nature. But what about dinner? What do you usually do for dinner? Yeah, dinner tends to be uh, some combination of a ideally fatty protein source, a lot of fish. Uh, I'm a big fan of getting um, bulk amounts of frozen salmon, fresh if I can find it. Um, and then combining that with usually some sort of um, pseudo grain like quinoa. Um, sometimes I'll do rice as well. I, I think that that might be surprising to certain people who are very opposed to the idea of eating any sort of rice, but I found that my blood sugar can tolerate it. And I also exercise and I'm not super worried about what that does to my physiology. Um, then again, greens. So salad sometimes, sauteed greens sometimes, um, trying to find diversity in the plants. So sometimes we get like a Romanesco or a purple, um, purple, purple cabbage or purple cauliflower to try to switch up the colors there. Um, other times it's more straightforward stuff, occasionally something a little bit more like sweet potato. Um, although I do try to be conscious of the fact that sweet potato plus rice is a pretty decent glycemic load. But again, it's some combination of trying to get a high quality protein source. Sometimes it'll be um, beef, buffalo, uh, more of a red meat, but I don't do that super often. Um, sometimes something like chicken as well, but it's really trying to stick to ideally more of the marine proteins because, you know, as we can talk about when it when we think about the macros that uh, are contained in our foods, the omega threes that are found in marine proteins. So it's a type of fat that is uh, concentrated in, in uh, fish like salmon, but also smaller fish like mackerel, sardines, anchovies, um, has been one of the more strongly linked nutrients to brain health. And I will say too, on the dinner front, this is, as well as the breakfast front, this is kind of an ideal day where I have time to do these things. Um, if it's a busy day, if I'm in the office, uh, obviously I'm not going to be preparing myself a big meal of, of eggs and kale. So. What I like to do there is to have on hand uh, these small tins of cold water fish. Uh, I'm a big fan of wild planets, especially their mackerel and olive oil. I think they're, they taste fantastic and they're small fish, so they don't have as much mercury. Um, and then comboing that with, again, whatever greens and maybe some sort of um, uh, grain that isn't super refined for lunch and for dinner, that's a pretty standard combination. 
So it seems like you do incorporate quite a bit of carbs into your diet. Mm-hmm. It brings me to my next next question. So we've heard that the brain can run off ketones or obviously it can run off glucose. What's your opinion on this? Do you think that ketones is a cleaner fuel source? Do you think that there's kind of a a limit in terms of how long we want the brain to run off ketones versus glucose? I would love to dive into this a little bit. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, it's, it's something people feel pretty strongly about. I know that given that the keto diet has been popularized for some time now, at least initially there was this idea that we should always be running on ketones and that glucose is an inferior fuel source, but I haven't seen anything convincing that tells me the brain can ever fully get away from glucose, um, as far as a kind of preferred fuel source. And the way that I look at it is in some ways, ketones are a cleaner fuel source, but if you think about the pathways that you're activating in the brain with different sorts of dietary modification and dietary restriction, um, it's it's really a question of what you're doing to certain nutrient sensors. Um, so mTOR, AMP kinase, things I know you're fully aware of um, that are a little bit t- technical to get into. But I think it's a very different question as far as how do you activate and deactivate those systems if you have a disease state. So where I come down to something like this is I think the ketogenic diet may make sense for people who have specific alterations in their metabolic state, um, as may be evidenced by something like uh, type two diabetes, Alzheimer's disease, um, where you have a more uh, significant alteration in metabolic pathways and metabolic processing. I haven't seen anything quite as convincing as it relates to an overall healthy person and how much benefit is gained by switching over to a ketogenic diet as it relates to cognitive processing. Um, I think that especially for a person who is pretty healthy to imagine that they need to switch over to a full-time ketogenic diet, especially if that means avoiding fiber-rich carbohydrates. Um, It doesn't seem like as sustainable of a long-term plan. So I've I've experimented with fasting. I've experimented with a a ketogenic diet. Um, I do sometimes do that for a day or two to see how I feel. But I think the bottom line is for any of these things, we have to be asking ourselves, what are we trying to do? And when you get to the level of uh, actual brain circuits, um, I think what the brain really likes is to have consistency in energy and to to look at the immune system of the brain and say, how do you reduce overall chronic inflammation? A ketogenic diet may be able to do that. But when people start moving towards long-term fasting or more extreme ketogenic diets as their standard, um, I feel like that probably puts a different type of stress on the brain and on the body, in addition to removing some of the benefits that you would get from uh, fibers, polyphenols, and plant foods that many people are restrictive. So last thing I'll just say on this is, um, I think there's, there's obviously nuance to it. There are people who do a kind of modified keto diet or a ketotarian diet where they're still incorporating plant based foods. But where I have concerns is where people move to the extremes and say carbohydrates are bad. And I just don't think that there is the research to support that. Last thing I'll say here, long-term implications of a ketogenic diet on human health. I don't think there's a lot of data there. We just don't know. So I tend to advocate for something a bit more, I guess, conservative as it relates to pursuing balance, pursuing some sort of diversity of our nutrient intake over the course of the lifespan. Because 
It's one thing to talk about treating a condition like type two diabetes with a ketogenic diet. I think that has been shown to be pretty successful. Another thing to talk about treating a condition like Alzheimer's with a ketogenic diet. There's some recent research coming out showing that it may be uh, actually quite effective. However, for a person who is generally metabolically healthy, that you have to switch over to this pretty restrictive diet for which there's very little long-term data in human health. It, it just seems more moving towards the idea of polarized diet fad camps than it does to seem, does seem based on science. Yeah, that's a great answer. I personally, I do a bit of cycling, so I'll do, mm -hmm. I do, I do feel a lot of brain clarity on when I'm in more in a ketosis state or have ketones um, more prevalent. So I kind of do a cycle, but I, I agree with you. Um, it's all about balance. And what about the carnivore diet? Would you, you would you kind of have the same sentiment? Cause it's becoming so popular and I think people are really jumping on that wagon. Um, you know, there's some mainstream um, podcasters and celebrities that are trying it out. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I don't want to take anything away from people who are getting benefits from any sort of diet, but I guess a couple of points. The first one would be to say that I believe any diet that moves us away from the standard American diet is probably a good thing. And so even if it was the green bean or the celery juice, whatever diet, if you're not going to be eating as much refined carbohydrates, if you're not going to be eating as much processed um, seed oils, let's say, that's probably a good thing. And so I do think that a, a good chunk of the benefit people see with any of these new diets is because they're paying attention to what they're eating and they're moving away from the junk that is the default food that most people are eating. Um, specific to the carnivore diet, you know, I think, again, if you're going to ask yourself, like, what is the science to support this? Uh, show me the long-term study of carnivore diet, uh, and how that benefits health. And I'll be thrilled to see how that works. I haven't seen it. Um, certainly you can look at certain cultures like the Inuit who primarily ate a meat-based diet, but I think the idea of generalizing, uh, especially just a fully red meat-based diet for the average person, uh, I don't think there's just really much evidence to support that. Um, I think in the context of working with a provider and moving towards uh, something where you're identifying the foods that you can assimilate, uh, trying to identify the foods that are causing you problems, um, that could be helpful. Uh, and I know that many people have done kind of a modified carnivore diet, looking at conditions like autoimmune disease with benefit. But um, Again, I would come back to the question of uh, if you understand your needs and your physiology, can you target a diet to that? And where my concern is, is that if you're a typical person um, on social media or whatever, and you're looking for a way to get healthy, the idea that a carnivore diet is A, the best thing for you and B, sustainable over the long term, just doesn't seem to fit that much. So again, I don't want to... Uh, be rude to the people who are pursuing these types of diets. There are many people out there who are talking about these things that have far more experience in the dietary world than I do. But my own personal bias, I guess, about this would be, it doesn't seem to be so evidence-based. It also doesn't seem to be so sustainable. Uh, and you're removing the benefit of things like fiber and polyphenols, um, which we're increasingly understanding play a number of positive roles in human health. Dr. Will Cole gave, you know, kind of a similar sentiment. He said 
that it's similar to an elimination diet. So if you mm-hmm. were eating the standard American diet and then you're moving to a carnivore diet, it kind of can play the role of an elimination diet. So you might feel better because you're removing a lot of those processed foods and sugars and all of these additives that we had before. So wonderful. Um, So I want to talk about brain vitamins or brain supplements. What do you think, what would you be, of course, we're all very bio-individual and it's hard to give recommendations Mm -hmm. for everyone, but what are a few things that you really like for supporting brain health? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. My bias is always towards trying to get nutrients and diet from the environment rather than supplementation. Uh, With that said, I live in the northern climate of uh, Seattle region and this time of year, depending on when you're listening to this, right now it is January and it is very dark out. And that is a problem because I am not synthesizing much vitamin D. We know vitamin D receptors exist throughout the body, throughout the immune system, that vitamin D plays a significant role in our brain function. So I do supplement with vitamin D. Um, I try to get that basically every day. Um, in addition to that, you know, I think it becomes a bit more individualized uh, for me right after the vitamin D. I'm a pretty big proponent of most people supplementing vitamin D. Um, Omega-3s are kind of another big bucket of supplement that many people talk about as relates to brain health. As I said before, I'm trying to eat as much of it as I can in my diet. So uh, small cold water fish that are fatty as well as things like salmon um, to a lesser extent, other seafood um, and As your listeners may know, you can get omega-3s through plant-based sources, but as far as conversion to the ones that you really want for brain health, which are EPA and DHA, it's probably not as efficient. Um, So I do supplement with omega-3s. I won't always do it. So if I'm eating more cold water, omega-3 rich fish, I may take a break. Um, But the other thing that has interested me is primarily the role of omega-3s in mood disorders. And so I'm always trying to optimize my mood. Um, So that has has pushed me to experiment with higher doses of uh, EPA to see whether there's any changes there. Um, I wouldn't necessarily generalize that and say that's something everyone needs to be on. Um, Other things that are, I guess, interesting for brain health, you know, there's a lot to be said for vitamins, the B family of vitamins. I think that you can start getting into the conversation about frank deficiency versus insufficiency. Um, Certainly over the course of the time I'm seeing patients, I've seen people with significant B12 deficiency have a variety of neurological issues. Um, And so especially if a person has had any sort of GI surgery uh, that might inhibit their ability to kind of absorb, assimilate that B12, that's something to consider. obviously a whole conversation around methylation of vitamin Bs and actually getting them into your body if you are taking them. Um, But beyond that, I think the next step is the question of nootropics for brain health and the more interesting conversations that we might jump into later on about um, different sources of nutrients coming from the larger world that may modify brain health. Um, I've, I've done a couple of kind of personal reviews of the literature there, Um, everything from sources of magnesium um, to some of the more esoteric nootropics. What I have found is that, again, there's not a ton of research for these uh, molecules, these supplements in positively augmenting brain function as much as I would want there to be. 
but I'm still open to it. I'm still thrilled to look at that research. I just think I'm not in a place where I could tell people, you know, this supplement is going to positively augment your brain function, whether that's some form of, of GABA um, or some of the, again, more esoteric uh, forms of nootropic people are taking. The one nootropic though that I do take just about every day is caffeine. Uh, I am a huge fan of coffee. I like the taste of it. I like the way it makes me feel. If you look at the research, there is a little bit of back and forth as it relates to whether um, coffee is good or bad for you. I'm obviously biased, but I tend to look at um, the overall research suggesting that it does seem to have a positive effect on our bodies, uh, including our brain function. And there are a number of reasons why that may be the case. Um, ranging from increases in brain-derived neurotrophic factor to an anti-inflammatory benefit to antioxidants. Um, but bottom line for me is I enjoy the way that I think when I have more caf a bit of caffeine in the morning. Uh, I enjoy the ritual of drinking coffee. And there's a, there's a good amount of research showing that caffeine can positively augment brain function um, if people are underslept, not as much, I think, for people who are getting a good amount of sleep. So that brings me to the last point I'd say, which is the most powerful nootropic that I recommend to people is sleep. The most powerful brain supplement that I recommend is sleep. And the reason for that is unlike basically everything else I've talked about, uh, sleep has been consistently shown to improve brain function compared to not getting sleep. We all know this inherently. If you uh, deprive yourself of sleep for a night and you try to focus the next day, it is harder. Why is that? It seems so straightforward. Of course, you need sleep so that you could focus. It's hard to drive if you're sleepy. But fundamentally, what we understand is that sleep enables your brain to work at a better level. And it allows for better memory, allows for better focus, allows for better attention. So basically, every aspect of beneficial brain function is improved by sleep. Um, so that's why I tell people before you go out and buy all of these supplements, if you haven't optimized your sleep, you're just throwing money away because it is orders of magnitude more beneficial, in my opinion, than basically anything you can put into your body in supplement form. Absolutely. I agree. It's the most foundational piece of brain health. Um, do you track your sleep with any device or you just wake up in the morning and see how you feel? Uh, so I, I don't have an aura or another sleep tracker right now. I have messed with a bunch of variables to improve my sleep. Um, I have been somebody who has struggled with sleep over the course of my life. I've in the past taken prescription sleep aids back in, in high school. Um, what I found is that I have a pretty strong kind of, uh, or I had a, a very strong connection with stress and not getting enough sleep. So I would be in kind of a sympathetic arousal state, wouldn't be able to fall asleep, would fall asleep, would wake up in the middle of the night, and then wouldn't be able to go back to sleep. And so again, I experimented with a bunch of uh, prescriptions to help me to sleep um, back in the day. They had varying levels of efficacy and definitely significant side effects as it related to my kind of brain function while I was taking them. Um, and so in the years after, I, I have just had to spend a lot more time working with things like meditation, paying attention to the content I'm consuming in the hours before bed, optimizing variables like temperature uh, prior to getting in bed and while I'm in bed, um, even experimenting with things like showering baths before bed. That's interesting because it actually vasodilates and cools off your body. Um, but I'm still working on it. I don't track it. What I found personally, and certainly isn't the case for many people, 
is that adding that extra variable of tracking sleep seems to add some additional stress to my day because I'm worried about making sure I do everything right. And what I want to do is be able to get into bed with absolutely no concern and try to wind down in that way. Certainly not opposed to it. Many people in my family and my friend circle use Aura and other technologies and they swear by it. Uh, I just haven't personally found it to be what I want to do right now. Yeah, I think that there's two sides of that coin because, you know, I want to check my sleep score like almost first thing in the morning. Like, how did I sleep? And then based on that score, I think sometimes you can be more, um, you know, prone to just basing it off the data versus basing it off of how you feel. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's pros and cons. But for anyone that's really struggling with their sleep, if you're going to do end of one experiments, I found that it's, it's kind of cool to track the data. Um, so I want to move to another topic. But neuroplasticity versus neurogenesis. Can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about what each are and how we can improve both? It was about late 1800s where scientists started to have this understanding that the brain can change itself as a response to its environment. And it was actually Santiago Ramon y Cajal, uh, who was this Spanish scientist who seemed to be involved in everything brain related for like a hundred years. But he proposed this idea that there were cerebral gymnastics, that if you exercise your brain, you could change the strength of how the brain functioned in specific ways. Um, so basically presenting this concept that our brain function is dynamic, that it is a reflection of how we use it. And that has in subsequent years led to an incredible amount of discovery as to how the brain responds to its environment, how the brain kind of rewires itself to its environment. And depending on the way that people uh, kind of categorize this, there are these two big buckets that are worth talking about. One is neurogenesis and the other is neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity sometimes includes neurogenesis because neuroplasticity is basically the idea that the brain changes in both structure and function as a reflection of our inner and outer environments, meaning what happens around us, what happens within us changes the way that our brain is wired, changes the actual structure of our brains. So then you can talk about a number of different ways in which that happens because the brain can change, for example, uh, the strength of connections between different neurons. That's called synaptic plasticity, but it can also change the physical nature of itself, meaning you can grow new neurons and you can obviously lose neurons. So growing new neurons is called neurogenesis. So let's pause there for a second. Both of these are really cool concepts because it means that you can change your brain in a certain direction. It means that whatever your brain looks like right now, it will be different tomorrow and you can direct that change. What's key to this is the understanding that if you're not aware of it, you're going to let whatever's happening to you around you push your brain towards a new state. So for people who are mindlessly engaging with social media, watching a ton of TV and news, listening to really stressful conversations, engaging in stressful conversations, eating junk food all the time, those inputs are wiring our brains to a different way. So tomorrow's brain may be worse brain than today's brain as it relates to making good decisions, as it relates to having good kind of emotional state. So let's come back now to these two concepts, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. 
The neurogenesis piece is actually pretty recent as it relates to our knowledge that it's actually happening in the human brain. We've known for a little bit longer that it happens in animal brains, but it's only, again, in the last couple of decades that we've been definitive in saying human brains grow new neurons over the course of the lifespan. A couple of regions in the brain where that seems to happen. One of them is the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, the memory center of the brain. But I will say as much as it is an exciting thing to recognize that neurogenesis is real in human brains, the evidence to date has been that it's been a small amount of neurogenesis over the course of the lifespan. So we're talking, you know, uh, not a huge turnover of growing new neurons in a given year it does happen, but it seems to be localized. It doesn't seem to be a ton of neurons. On the other hand, this neuroplasticity concept, the idea that we are rewiring uh, our brains, not necessarily growing new neurons, but changing the strength of connections between neurons, changing perhaps the shape of those neurons. That's something that's happening at a moment to moment basis across the brain. And so to get to a little bit more of a technical level here, when you think about how information memory uh, is stored and exchanged within the brain, it's still being discovered exactly how these processes occur. But obviously for you to know something today that you didn't know yesterday, something has to be different. So how is that possible? How is that information stored? That gets to the essence of what neuroplasticity is about. It's about our brains changing at a moment to moment basis in response to our environment. And what researchers have shown is that there's one specific type of neuroplasticity called synaptic plasticity, which is in essence, the strength of the connection between neurons that may be incredibly important for everything from uh, memory to mood. And the essence of this is when you fire messages between neurons, it can strengthen or weaken the connection between those neurons, that it can make them more likely to continue to communicate, strengthening the connection, or less likely to continue to communicate, weakening the connection. And that happens because when you think about the space between neurons, it's called a synapse. It's basically a gap. You can increase the number of receptors, which means that if you shoot a signal out here, it's more likely to get picked up. You can also change those receptors so that it increases the likelihood that if the signal is sent, that it gets transmitted to the other neuron. What's super interesting though is based on the strength of this connection, the neurons will actually put out new outgrowths to increase their chances of making other connections with other neurons. So what happens here in that neural space, the synapse changes the structure and the function of neurons. So that's synaptic plasticity. And the reason that I've gotten really interested in synaptic plasticity is because it seems like this is the part of neuroplasticity that may be predominantly affected in depression, where synaptic plasticity and neuroplasticity in general seems like it may be uh, it may be perturbed. It may be less functional in depression, and that depressive treatments, everything from antidepressants to ECT to even psychedelics, may act by restoring healthy synaptic plasticity. So that might have been more than what you were looking for there. But bottom line, again, our brains are changing moment to moment as a reflection of our environments. We can direct that change. And the, the theme or the definition of how this happens is neuroplasticity, the changing of our brain's function and structure. 
No, that was a perfect answer. It's such an exciting concept because I I feel as if if people can understand this deeply, they have the opportunity to change the way that they think, how they respond to things. So can you give us a few examples of how to boost new neurons or neurogenesis and how you might be able to begin um, changing your neuroplasticity? Yeah, I, I will say, I mean, you, you could talk about some of this as it relates to neurogenesis, but really my focus has been in positively augmenting neuroplasticity. Um, many of the pathways are the same, so it's, it's not super important to try to delineate which process you're activating because one of the key pathways that is promoting both neuroplasticity and neurogenesis concerns this protein I mentioned called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I like to think about the environment around neurons and ask whether it is something that is promoting health or whether it is damaging health. And that really gets us to neurogenesis to some extent, but certainly neuroplasticity, meaning are we giving our neurons the signals to strengthen connections, to become more adaptive to the environment? And I guess I want to be clear here, neuroplasticity as far as strengthening connections isn't always what we want. Sometimes we want it to weaken connections. And that's really the piece of saying we want to direct neuroplasticity. So we want to connect parts of the brain that are going to enable us to enjoy life more. We want to disconnect parts of the brain that are going to uh, take away from our quality of life. So then it means a question of saying, what are the major variables that seem to impact primarily neuroplasticity, but certainly neurogenesis as well. And it's thinking about how stress interacts with the system, for example. Now, stress is interesting in that I think we are all aware it is not a good thing for us to be highly stressed for long periods of time, but small amounts of stress are actually good for us, especially if they occur in kind of a rate limited a way that leads to a positive outcome. This is the topic of hormesis, basically positive stressors. And I think this is really key for people to understand because we're always saying, oh, we need to get rid of stress you need some stress. It's what causes the body to become more resilient. And it's actually a signal that it needs to change. It needs to alter itself. So unless you want to just stay the exact same person for every single moment of your life, you need some stressors. Um, when we think about how this relates to the brain, however, chronic stress, as well as high levels of acute stress seem to be toxic to neuroplasticity and may damage neurogenesis. Um, high levels of stress appear to be especially problematic for the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, which are two areas of the brain that are highly implicated in Alzheimer's disease, as well as in mood disorders. So we really want to do what we can to try to minimize that chronic or really high levels of stress. To that end, there are a number of things I recommend. I would say, first of all, telling people that they need to just stop having stress is ridiculous. Um, I've had periods in my life that have been very stressful and it isn't a scenario I can just say, well, I'm not going to have stress anymore. So it's finding ways to mitigate that stress. And that can be things like meditation, exercise, getting some nature exposure, even getting good sleep, all of those things can help. Um, what's super interesting to see is that when these activities are pursued, it appears to not only calm the stress pathways. Um, so for example, 20 minutes of exposure to a urban nature environment has been shown to lower levels of salivary cortisol. Um, but that you see uh, in many cases, a, a kind of reversal of the brain imaging that you would see in the context of, of too much stress. 
So it does seem to actually act on these neuroplastic pathways. So again, I think stress is really key, um, but you can also talk about how uh, certain uh, external supplements, um, prescriptions might modify these pathways. And one of the things I was very interested to see is that conventional antidepressants, which are obviously not ideal for a number of reasons, one being that many people don't get a positive benefit, one being that maybe even over half of people have side effects, um, but that they seem to increase BDNF and therefore seem to promote healthy neuroplasticity. So, you know, again, not saying that we should be taking antidepressants for the neuroplastic benefit. However, it's just really interesting to see that prescription medications may act on those pathways. And then the last one I'll mention here, I mean, there are a number of other ones we can talk about as it relates to diet, but um, which is generally be kind of natural molecules. And so maybe in that group, we'll talk about dietary as well as uh, non-traditional dietary. So there's some research suggesting that uh, whole coffee fruit, um, which is not the coffee bean, but literally the fruit around it may positively increase BDNF levels. There's some suggestion that things like turmeric, um, curcumin, uh, even omega-3s may have a positive effect on BDNF levels and therefore neuroplasticity. Um, and then the last group would be thinking about how psychedelics may positively increase neuroplasticity. I'm sure we'll talk about that. One last thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, probably the best way to positively increase neuroplasticity is through exercise. And I'm guessing other guests have talked about that at length, so I won't get into it in too much detail. But it's fascinating to note that in healthy humans, exercise promotes the release of BDNF in the brain and that exercise, chronic exercise, uh, has been linked with basically all of the positive changes in the brain that would be the exact opposite of kind of the damaging uh, lack of neuroplasticity that we might see in aging as well as in other pathological conditions. Yeah, I, you know, I actually, when I exercise, I don't even think about it so much as what it's going to do for my body. That's a great byproduct. But every time mm -hmm. I go to the gym, I always post on my story and I say brain booster because that's how I see it. I think it's like the ultimate form of, you know, yeah, not only promoting um, brain derived neurotropic factor, but so many other great, you know, neurotransmitted related benefits. Um, so before we move on to psychedelics, which I definitely want to talk about, I want to talk about neurofeedback. So what is your opinion? Um, there's, I have a little neurofeedback device at home. It's, it's a very simple one, but it's really helped me in terms of, um, you know, improving focus. And I'm sure that's related to neuroplasticity. We want to make the brain um, be able to switch into that focus state kind of on demand if possible. What is your opinion? Well, so tell me a little bit more. What does your neurofeedback device actually tell you and, and how do you use it to maintain focus? Yeah, so it's called a focus calm. It's a really, uh, really simple one. So you do um, either a meditation or you play a brain game. And while you're doing it, it's giving you feedback real time of if your brain is more focused or if you're, you, you know, and I can tell, like I can know when I have wandering thoughts or I'm having a stressful, you know, kind of ideation in my brain. And it'll show on, you know, it'll make a red, uh, kind of like a red bubble. When you're in a deep focus state, it'll give you the blue points. Some of the games, for instance, like you can drive a car, but the car only moves if you are in a calm and focused state. So mm. I have found it very helpful because it, it shows me 
what it feels like to be in that state, and then I can more easily go back to it. I know that there's many other more comprehensive forms of um, neurofeedback, but have you had any experience with the neurofeedback, or do you do it at home? Well, I've I've used the heart math devices in the past, um, and I think it's always an interesting question of what exactly are they measuring with these devices? Uh, you know, is it heart rate variability? Is it actually measuring waves of, of brain function? Um, so the, the skeptic in me is always asking like, what is the validity of each of these things? Um, has it been reviewed? Has it been compared against placebo? But then the other piece of me is saying for people to pay attention to their brain function in any way is a positive thing. And the behavioral piece, uh, is, is obviously really key in that in order for us to feel motivated to do something, we have to see feedback. Um, I think it's one of the reasons why CGM has become so popular because it is an immediate biofeedback loop. Um, I, at the moment, I'm not using any of these devices. I'm certainly not opposed to it, but I think that these things are maybe very helpful for people when they're starting their journey of paying attention to how their brains and bodies are reacting to what's going in. And the realization that we in real time are changing the function of our bodies, function of our brains, I think that in and of itself makes it worthwhile. And you can get that through any number of biofeedback devices. It doesn't have to be neurofeedback, but to appreciate that you can lower your blood pressure by doing some deep breathing. Any of these things um, I have found have been really helpful for people in understanding this mind and body connection and in understanding that they have more control over their health outcomes than perhaps they thought before. But I don't know that I would recommend necessarily any specific neurofeedback device. You actually probably have a better understanding of them than I do. Um, I do think it's something where it can be a powerful tool for people who are starting to make that connection. Um, and then there's, again, the behavior piece, which is if it's something you do repeatedly, and if there's some sort of gamification for it, where you're driving the car or trying to get on a 10 day streak, that's going to motivate people to stick to it. Absolutely. That's another huge component is because, you know, I'm a little bit competitive, so I don't want to, you know, I I'm really good about sticking to my meditations, but now I really never miss one because I want to, you know, keep the streak going. So it's just a little bit more accountability, just like with the CGM, you know, the data is right there. So very, very great um, feedback. So Let's go into psychedelics. What are the studies saying? What's your opinion? Yeah, let's just talk about it all. Yeah, well, I think it's clear that um, many people are talking about psychedelics and many people are talking about psychedelics who perhaps otherwise would have been either scared to or wouldn't have been interested in the subject at all. And I, I recently uh, kind of reviewed both Google Trends and uh, also the PubMed trends in psychedelic over the last couple of decades. And what you see is uh, a dramatic spike in both publications related to psychedelics and in kind of the lay public, as indicated by Google Trends, um, interest in learning more about them. There has been uh, really this biphasic or bi-peak uh, scenario with psychedelics where there was a ton of research done, um, back in 1950s, 1960s, and then a pretty substantial drop-off for several decades in the context of increased legal regulation over the ability to use psychedelics, both recreationally and in the research setting. Um, but in the last couple of decades, uh, it's been described as a, a renaissance 
really just since the early 2000s, as far as both the public and research or academic interest in these molecules. Um, what drew me to the topic of psychedelics is, I would say my, my primary goal in understanding health has been to appreciate how and why the brain gets stuck uh, and the body gets stuck. Um, and then to provide people with tools or at least an education on how we can get that stuckness out. And as I look at the patterns, uh, the, the biological pathways that are most strongly correlated with this stuckness state, um, and I can kind of describe that in a little bit more detail, these are the pathways that are acted on by psychedelics. And when I think about it at a psychological level, what stuckness represents, which is kind of a rigid and unhealthy pattern of thinking where we're locked into thinking about things in a certain way, where we're uh, stuck in the past, where we're stuck in the future. So maybe depression, anxiety, respectively. Psychedelics, they unstick this. Um, they probably more than any other intervention I've seen have been associated with um, both subjective and objective markers of breaking these patterns of maladaptive thinking. And the way that they do that may be through these biological pathways, one of which is uh, positively augmenting neuroplasticity. So um, again, I've, I've spent the last couple of years um, trying to get a, a better understanding of this. I've been doing some presentations on this subject, and I think it's an area where there's a lot of stigma still uh, as it relates to seeing these molecules as drugs, uh, drugs of abuse, but in understanding that number one, um, the side effect profile and uh, the negative or adverse effects from these drugs are probably hugely overblown, uh, especially when they're done in a controlled scenario, um, that the side effect profile is actually far lower than most of our conventional antidepressive and uh, psychiatric drugs. And that these molecules, um, well, I guess based on the fact that mental health conditions are exploding in prevalence, especially during COVID, and that these molecules appear to help people break free from what have otherwise been these very entrenched and drug-resistant, treatment-resistant states of depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, I just think it's, it's unavoidable that if you're interested in mental health, that you uh, become that you don't become interested in this. So I think it's just, it's an area that I would love to see continue to explore. Um, certainly it needs to be done in a responsible way, but the expectation that we shouldn't be talking about this because it is unsafe or otherwise um, something that is, doesn't deserve our attention when contrasted with the fact that so many people are suffering from mental health and that our conventional therapeutics, um, despite the fact that they work for many people, still don't work for, for very many people, like millions and millions of people, and that their side effect profiles are so extreme. I just don't see how we can not have the conversation. I would love to, if you wouldn't mind, to send over some of the studies that you're looking at as well. Sure. Um, just I'm always intrigued, and I've looked into it a bit, and of course, the very popular topic do you have any clinics that you would recommend or anyone that you kind of know that can do it in a safe way? Because right. it seems like we're learning a lot about the benefits now, but it might be a little bit difficult. It's not that accessible for people to use it as a therapy right now. That's a really good point. And then something that I always say, which is, I think we should have the conversation about this. I think we should have an honest, open conversation about psychedelics. But 
I'm first of all, not telling everyone they should just run out and use psychedelics because I think that what has been shown pretty consistently is it's set and setting. It's doing it in the right context that has the big benefits to mental health. And so I think that's very different from the idea of just um, getting some psychedelics from a friend and recreationally using them with the expectation that it's going to change um, mental health. In addition, I think that there are a number of safety considerations for that recommendation. So that's not what I'm saying to do. Um, as it relates to the kind of uh, landscape of psychedelic use right now in the United States, at least, what we see is that um, ketamine, and it's an antimer, so S-ketamine primarily, um, is legal, is used in the context of treatment-resistant depression primarily. Um, however, some people wouldn't consider ketamine a traditional psychedelic, uh, and those clinics don't always have phenomenal integration as it relates to trying to maintain that set and setting and providing good follow-up care for people. But that said, ketamine clinics are available across the United States. Um, so that is something that obviously if you're working with a primary care doctor or a mental health provider um, might be a conversation when it comes to other psychedelics. So you know, probably the the tops the top psychedelics that are being actively studied right now uh, and that show up in the popular conversation would be psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. Um, PTSD would be MDMA, uh, and, and for both of those cases, we have kind of breakthrough designation because of their potential benefits for those conditions. Um, but at the moment, both of those um, medications are only available if you are participating in a clinical study. And so a couple of thoughts here. One is um, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov. You can type in whatever uh, psychedelic you're interested in and see whether you may um, be able to participate in a clinical study um, where they are recruiting for one of those, one of the conditions. Um, but what we're seeing now in in many states is uh, looking into both new regulations around these molecules and specifically in Oregon, there is an initiative right now to allow for uh, practitioners to use psychedelics with their patients outside of clinical trials. And um, I know some of the people who are involved with this work, they're really in the process of making sure they have good protocols in place, good screening in place, um, where they're going to be able to empower mental health practitioners to uh, use psychedelics. There's a lot of emphasis in Oregon on psilocybin um, for patients. But the, the thought would be, if this experiment works, if people get benefit, if there aren't a whole lot of red flags, then it could be expanded to other states as well as expanded within Oregon. Unfortunately, that means for people who are interested uh, especially if you don't live in Oregon, there's probably a significant wait time before it might be available to you. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of people using psychedelics who are not doing it in the medical context. There's a lot of people using psychedelics in underground therapeutics. Um, I, I would just say again, you know, like anything, there's, a, there's more risk involved if you don't go with a, uh, kind of a, a trained practitioner in the context of a clinical study. Um, so my, my advocacy right now is, you know, we're all monitoring this. We're all very optimistic, but I think it is, it's too early to say that there is some sort of protocolized way that at least I would recommend anyone go about using these molecules because um, 
that is the research that is being done. And hopefully it will be implemented in the next few years. But right now it just doesn't exist. Well, I'll make sure to stay tuned to your um, Instagram posts and everything. And if you share anything, I'll make sure to forward it along to my audience. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an incredible conversation. I'm going to include all of your books and website and resources in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kayla. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Kayla Barnes, does not accept responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of the information contained herein. Opinions of their guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical issue, consult a licensed physician.